This episode is brought to you by Auth0. That's Auth0.com. In this episode, we get to speak with the Senior Director of Product Strategy at Oracle, Preston So. Frederick Philip Von Weiss, and thank you so much for consuming the Thunder Nerds, a conversation with people behind the technology that love what they do and do tech good. Before we get going, I first want to thank our sponsor. We have the good people at Auth0 as our exclusive sponsor this year. They make it easy for developers to build a custom, secure, and standard-based unified login by providing authentication and authorization as a service. So if you could, please go check them out at Auth0.com. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Auth0. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome our guest. We have podcaster, Senior Director, Product Strategy at Oracle, Preston So. Welcome to the show, Preston. Thanks, Frederick. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. And where are you joining us from exactly? So today I'm joining you from uh, New York City, and I'm not sure where this noise is coming from at the moment, but New York City is a very noisy place, so uh, very sorry about the interruptions. But um, yeah, I've been in New York City, uh, and um, I've been here for about, oh gosh, a long time now and um, a great city to be in. That's cool, what's a long time? Where, where are you actually from? Are you from somewhere else? You're not from New York? Uh, I'm originally from Colorado, actually. Um, oh. So uh, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, which is where um, you know, I got my hands first dirty with code and um, you know, then went over to the East Coast to uh, go to college and also to um, you know, work and live in New York, which has always been a bit of a dream of mine ever since I was a kid. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 the place to make it, right? Uh, there's so many great minds gathering in one location. You could only, um, I, I don't know if it's possible to not kind of absorb the culture and the the technology and and everyone's uh, aspirations and passion through osmosis when you're in a in a place like that, right? Absolutely. I think one of the things that really draws me to New York, um, you know, I'm a huge foodie, so one of the things I really enjoy uh, doing is discovering new restaurants looking for um, cuisines that are really difficult to find. One of the things that I did this morning actually was I trolled a little bit uh, because one of the things, one of the, one of the kind of cuisines that I've been hoping to try very soon, and it's not really in my neighborhood, it's not really in any of the kind of areas that I spend a lot of time in, but um, you know, New York is actually very famous for its Uzbek uh, and Central Asian cuisine. Um, and so that's one of the things that I've been seeking out. I made a little list of some of the restaurants I wanna go to. Um, and New York City is really, you know, I can't really see myself living anywhere else because you know it's such a wonderful place. You meet all sorts of different people. Um, one of the things I really like about New York is just the fact that uh, everyone has such a different experience, different background, such cultural richness in um, the city. And um, of course, you know it doesn't hurt that uh, politically it's very close to where I stand as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So how has it been? Um speaking of New York, how, how's it been with like the, uh, the the cultural situation, what's going on right now? Uh, add uh, COVID on top of that. What's what's the uh, atmosphere right now in the, in the environment? And and let me also uh, preface that from my understanding that New York, the, the numbers of COVID have been dropping, 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 right? Am I, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Um, you know, New York obviously has been, uh, you know, the sort of nexus of a lot of different things lately. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, we had uh, a very, you know, really tough time with COVID here in New York City. I think one of the things that, um, you know, really struck me, though, was the fact that uh, the city really came together to help each other out, to support each other. Uh, one of the things that I love to see is all of these mutual aid networks really working hard to ensure that uh, more of those, um, uh, you know, that aid gets to where it needs to go, the support in terms of food, in terms of groceries for our uh, neighbors who are, uh, have, you know, compromised immune systems or have issues with, um, you know, being able to uh, uh, go out there and actually shop for the things that they need. Um, and I think during the height of, you know, the COVID pandemic, especially when it was really at the apex of, um, you know, the kind of high case count here in New York was 
it was, it was a really challenging time. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of New Yorkers who stayed in the city, um, you know, really share that kind of sentiment of uh, uh, it was a really, really hard time for uh, everyone here in, 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 in New York. Um, also, you know, we, we had sort of that other, uh, uh, you know, over the course of the last few weeks, um, you know, obviously we've had a lot of protests and a lot of um, action happening out there in terms of, uh, you know, trying to honor the memories of of uh, people who have fallen at the hands of police, um, especially folks uh, you know like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, you know, and Tony McDade, all these people, uh, and if, you know, now of course we have other names to add to the list over the course of the last few weeks. Um, one thing that's been really good to to see here is that you know New York City has been at the very forefront of uh, really advocating for and, and fighting against some of the really you know pernicious and and awful racism and structural racism and oppression that we see. Um, you know, around the world and also in our country. Um, one of the things that I was hoping to do was to join one of the protests. Um, uh, you know, there was a very large protest a couple of Fridays ago over here at the Barclay Center in Brooklyn. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think is really tough and one of the things that I've struggled with is, you know, the, that, that kind of dilemma between, you know, being an activist, going out there, protesting, making sure that our voices are heard, but at the same time, keeping ourselves and keeping, of course, the uh, uh, you know, our friends and loved ones in our life safe um, from some of the complications of COVID-19. Yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, it's very difficult because, I mean, you are, if you are in one of those um, situations where you're going to go out and protest, even if everybody's wearing masks, you know, and thank God a lot of people are, it's, it's bringing the risk down dramatically, but there's still a lot of people in a lot of other locations that are not like, oh, for example, I'm in Florida and we have people that are advocating for not wearing masks where, you know, it's, it's just, it's clear science that just, just wear a mask, <laughs> just please wear a mask. You could see the places that are saying like, oh, we're not going to wear a mask. And you could see it just dramatically ticking up and up exponentially. And it's, the logic is baffling if you even want to call it logic. Yeah, and, and you know, one thing that I know that um, a lot of my friends here and a lot of my colleagues in New York City share and, you know, all over the tri-state is kind of uh, abject terror. Um, because one of the things that, you know, you might know about Frederick is that a lot of New Yorkers uh, 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 travel to Florida to escape um, the epidemic yes. here in New York. And now they're all coming back because uh, they're all scared of what's happening, uh, you know, in Florida. Um, <laughs> and so I think now the fear levels here are starting to ratchet back up. Um, you know, I'm trying to spend this weekend doing all the things I want to do out and about and, you know, get, you know, get my hair cut, for example, as you might have noticed, I've got a pretty nice, uh, uh, you know, toupee here um, and Looking trying good. to get everything out of the way so that I can go right back into lockdown. <laughs> I, I hear you. I actually did a big haircut. See the last episode for for uh, the for the <laughs> my COVID beard. But anyway, uh, yes, you know I am I'm also a, a Jersey boy, and I I moved down here when I was a kid, and you know as a lot of people did coming to Florida. So I I could definitely relate on that end. So how how are you doing with um with your remote work? A lot of people uh. It, we don't think about everyone's situation. Not everybody has a large home. Not everybody has a, a partner that is willing to put up with them or being on the phone all day if that's their uh, requirement of their job. Uh, a lot of people in, in these in bigger cities such as New York have small apartments because you live there and you go out to experience the city. It's not so much about your apartment. Um, and now everybody's stuck for a good 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 uh, amount of them, right? Working remotely. So. What do you, uh, what's your experience like and how have you been dealing with it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, to be honest, it's been ups and downs. I think it's been ups and downs for everyone, kind of, you know, a bit of a roller coaster, a bit of a kind of challenge for everyone. Um, I've never been one to work from home. I don't know about you, but, you know, I've never been one to successfully uh, be able to focus and motivate myself and get that drive I need to really put in a good day's work at home. And I think a lot of it is what, you know, that, that kind of qualm a lot of people share, which is that the TV's right there, the beer's in the fridge right behind me, you know, I've got some other things, you know, I've got my video games over here, I've got my books over here. It's a really hard thing to do. And so, um, you know, it's funny because whenever I used to work from home or work remotely, a lot of people don't know this about me, but when I say I'm working from home or working remotely, before this whole pandemic started, I was usually, you know, working uh, from cafes or working from, um, you know, 
places where there were, you know, where there was Wi-Fi where I could see other people working and I wouldn't be distracted by things at home. And so the first few weeks were definitely a struggle. You know, I will say um, I've never really been able to successfully set up a workstation at home, but it was a really great kind of endeavor for me because, um, you know, I didn't really have any kind of office at home that was set up. You know, my desk was covered in all the stuff that I um, would pack for my travels. And, you know, I had my passport there and all of my other kind of things there for my travel, but I would never use it as an actual place to work. Um, sure. So it's been nice to actually, you know, kind of get into that headspace and, and um, you know, regain a little bit of what I had lost um, in terms of being able to do that kind of work from home. Yeah, I think part of it is uh, what you, kind of highlighted there is setting up the right environment to actually work from home. If you, I remember there was a story that Jason Ogle told me on his uh, show a while ago about how he was working from home and he was uh, made a mistake of working in his bed when he was oh. working remote and he actually fell asleep uh, while he was working in his bed and got a call and there was, you know, it goes on from there and it was a bad story, but like, like, don't, don't, it, make sure you're working in an it's you're going to have an easier time if you work in a spot in your home where um that's your dedicated area you know you have a dedicated area for sleep you have a dedicated area like a, a table wherever you might do eat some food have, have some have a meal and do the same thing with work maybe that you know it's it's somewhere else if you have that affordance in your life to be able to have a different locations within whatever square footage you have. But um, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting how that works. So why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about your actual work? Let's talk about your day to day. So you are, and maybe not everybody knows exactly what you do. So you're senior director product strategy at Oracle. We've all heard of Oracle. Everybody thinks probably of you know, data as, as the first thing. What, what exactly does that mean? What does your title mean? And let's dive into what you do. Sure. Yeah. So um, a lot of folks might not know this, but I've spent um, the better part of about 12 or 13 years in the content management world, um, you know, CMS, content management systems. And my specialty has long been uh, over the past, I would say about five to six years has really been around how content management systems can um, really provide the underpinnings and the foundation for a really rich variety of different experiences that that content goes to. Um, and so the, 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 the actual work I do is uh, kind of interesting. You know, one thing you might not know about Oracle, you know, is that obviously we do a lot of work with databases. We do a lot of work with, um, you know, kind of that backend software. Um, you might know Oracle because of Java, for example, or GraalVM or some of these other amazing projects that we have. But one thing you might not know as much about Oracle is that we also have um, a variety of products that are really great for um, you know, teams that are working on content, teams that are working on design, teams that are working on other elements of uh, you know, sort of this new digital world that we live in. And one of those is, of course, Oracle's own content management system, uh, which is called Oracle CX Content. And it's part of our customer experience suite of products. And uh, what I do as part of that team is um, you know, I work on developer experience features. I work on our developer relations programs. Uh, I also do um, a lot of strategy work for our strategy around headless CMSs, um, how we're actually competing in kind of this new world of, of um, you know, more sort, sort of API driven or API only CMSs, as well as, um, you know, the kind of open source strategy that we want to do. One thing that Oracle isn't known as much for, uh, and I think this has been, um, you know, true ever since uh, the, the start of Oracle is that Oracle has never really been known as an open source company. Um, and it's never really been known as a company that, you know, sustains and maintains and provides and offers a variety of different open source libraries and products and, and, uh, and uh, projects and ecosystems. So that's part of my prerogative as well, is that one of the things that I work on at Oracle is to push forward our open source ecosystem. Um, I do a lot of work on our own developer ecosystem to make sure that we're providing some really great open source tools for our developer audience. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. Uh, I do wish I got to travel more than, than, than I am now. Um, you know, that's a, a big part of my job, obviously, as part of my developer relations kind of uh, responsibilities is to go and, and um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, talk at conferences, present, and um, share some of this knowledge that um, we really have uh, started to work on and, and really fleshed out. So. What are you doing now to uh, supplement that? How are you getting the word out rather than travel? What, what's, what's part of your responsibility, I guess, is what I'm asking 
to provide that message. Whereas you would have normally uh, jumped on a plane, went somewhere and did some evangelizing. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think everyone who works in developer relations, everyone who's a developer advocate, everyone who is, um, you know, even who just loves conferences and attends conferences is really feeling a lot of uh, grief and Listen. pain right now. Yeah, and, and you know, I think um, uh, despite the fact that we're speaking virtually right now, um, you, know, I, you know, live on YouTube, uh, I have the feeling that you and I both share a, a bit of a preference more for in-person conferences than virtual conferences. Um, very much. <laughs> I find these uh, virtual conferences to be very exhausting. Um, and I find that, you know, it's just really hard when you don't have anyone in front of you to, to, to really know how people are reacting or, you know, kind of thinking about what you're saying. So, you know, over the course of the last few months, I've really shifted gears. Um, I've moved away from just working on talks and just working on things that really require me to be in person with people. And, you know, rather I've been focusing much more on uh, better leveraged media for people who are stuck at home, people who are, you know, stuck with their families and um, are having to work in remote teams. And that means I'm doing a lot of blogging. I'm doing a lot of, um, uh, you know, recording of tutorial videos. Um, I'm also doing a great deal of writing for other outlets. And um, yeah, I'm also working on a book right now as well. So uh, all those sorts of projects are helping me to kind of offset the, how, how much I miss being in that conference space. Yeah, a lot of the things that are just so advantageous are the things that take place outside of the conference. Uh, we just had a show about this uh, uh, two or three shows ago. Uh, with a bunch of people from conferences that we uh, met and talked to. I think we had like 14 people on there. But the thing that we were highlighting is that the things that you get from just going up to people and having a personal conversation like, hey, what technology are you currently interested? What have you been doing? How does this relate to this? Let me hear about some of your side projects, like little things like that. Or, oh, hey, isn't the conference food really great today? I can't believe they wrap bacon around uh, hot chocolate, <laughs> you know, yeah. cr crazy stuff, whatever, you know, it's just like that kind of personal stuff. It's, it's so, um, you get so much more from that. There's a lot of value to that. No, it's so true. And, and you know, it's, it's very funny you mention that because, um, you know, one thing that, that I'm sure you've seen from my background is that I, you know, I've also spent um, a good amount of time, probably about 13, 14 years in the Drupal community, um, the Drupal open source uh, a content management system kind of ecosystem. And one of the things that's really interesting about DrupalCon, which is the, you know, global conference, is that everyone's favorite part of the conference is always what we call the hallway track where you catch up with friends, you ask, you know, and you have these chats that are very much ancillary to and, and, and orthogonal to a lot of the conference content, but can still foster a lot of innovation. Actually, the conference that I, um, that I work on here in New York City uh, came out from one of those conversations. And it's just an incredible source of innovation. You know, I think a lot of folks, when they go to conferences, they think that it's all about the talks. It's all about, you know, the sorts of um, sponsors they get to meet in the exhibit hall. But it's really, really about the kinds of conversations you have on the side. Um, and especially those kinds of small talk conversations that can really lead to some interesting uh, discussions and some interesting uh, outcomes. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people think, like, well, you know, I could just watch a video of said subject online. Of course you can. That is not the point. As you just outlined, there's so much value in having that handshake, uh, you know, post and after COVID, uh, post and before COVID, I guess, and then having those kind of conversations that are so uh, rich with details about what's going on with that person and the industry that lead to other things that, you know, that just basic life kind of textures that, that you don't get from watching a video, I guess. It's so true, it's so true. And, and I think that's one of the kind of multimodal ways that you can really uh, take advantage of conferences. It's not, you know, it's, 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 it's about every single way of interacting with people that makes a conference so great. Um, I yeah, it's uh, interacting and engaging and having an actual conversation with a human being. That's, there's the value. So uh, Drupal, how, the heck did you get into Drupal? Drupal, I think for some people currently um, might, might think it's kind of passe or, or, or some people might th think, hey, I, I love Drupal. I'm totally into Drupal. You know, there could be people on seven. There could be people waiting for nine. Um, there could be people that 
we'll we'll get into the subject of uh, building it into like some some form of headless CMS like like you were talking about um, or you do talk about in your book using Gatsby and um, uh, um, GraphQL and getting the data that way and pushing it into Gatsby and so forth. And again, we'll we'll dive into that. But how did how did you actually get into Drupal initially? Are you like a Drupal five guy and went forth? Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, you actually uh, uh, got it exactly right. Um, it, it, it was Drupal 5. Um, and my past and sort of my background in content management is really unusual. Um, one of the mm. things that I actually, you know, I, I never really uh, started out with CMSs at the very beginning. Um, my first uh, programming language was actually Visual Basic way back in uh, 1999. And two years later, I, I started hearing a lot about sort of you know, the, the, the ways in which the web was going to totally reinvent programming and totally reinvent the ways in which we build software and all of these things. And I thought, hmm, you know, really interesting. And I started getting more and more into certain aspects of web design. Um, you know, one of the things that was happening right around that era, around 2001, 2002, uh, right when I was just getting started with web design was CSS was finally becoming a properly supported um, language. It wasn't just table-based layouts. It wasn't just font tags. It wasn't just all caps HTML. It was this kind of enriching experience to be able to come into the web design world right as this incredible revolution was happening. And, um, you know, I got to really work in uh, the space of web standards for many years. And I worked very, you know, uh, I, you know I had a blog back then, actually, that was very much, um, a, you know, supportive of web standards and very much, um, you know, a proponent of the fact that we're now introducing CSS-based layouts and these more uh, well-accepted techniques and more robust techniques for building websites. Um, but then what happened was, you know, interestingly enough, I joined an agency um, very early in my high school years that um, specialized in Drupal. And, you know, one day, you know, you know, I was, I was primarily coming in as a, as a designer. I was coming in as a web designer, graphic designer, print designer, and I was also doing a lot of photo and video restoration and, and post-production. And one of the things that, um, you know, obviously I share is that I have web design experience, web development experience, and they asked me, hey, we found this really interesting thing. It's called Drupal 5. Um, you know, it's this really cool tool. It could be really great for our customers. Can you take a look and tell us what you think? And, you know, the rest is history, as they say, uh, I, I got, you know, involved into my first, um, I got into my first Drupal project when I was, uh, you know, it was the year 2007. Um, and so that year was kind of like the first time I, I really discovered open source, you know, as kind of this amazing, not only uh, architectural or engineering paradigm, but actually much more related to the community itself and the more human aspects of software development. Um, and I got very immersed in the Drupal community. I got very involved um, and, uh, uh, you know, went through Drupal 5, Drupal 6, Drupal 7, Drupal 8, all the way. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's still a very, very important part of my career and my life. Um, so, but the thing that I would say about Drupal, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And, and the thing that really kind of changed a lot of my impressions of um, the way that the web could work is the fact that what we were seeing with Drupal and what we were seeing with a lot of these emerging CMSs like WordPress and some of these other tools that came out was really this unprecedented level of, you know, manipulability and engagement that editorial teams and content teams and other teams could have in a no code way. Um, the yeah. fact that Drupal introduced for, you know, the very first time this idea of no code content modeling, um, you know, something that that WordPress also touts was an incredible step away from, you know, some of the some of the more glorified blogging tools or discussion boards um, and also away from some of the WYSIWYG, uh, uh, you know, software back then, like front page, like, um, you know, Adobe Dreamweaver. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Going back to Macromedia days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Macromedia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um you know it's it's kind of funny to see how far we've come and and one of the things yeah. that I you know, one of the things I find really interesting is talking to developers who are coming into the industry today and coming into the world today because you know they didn't under you know they, they don't know that things like Firebug and DevTools didn't exist back in the day they didn't know that you know back in the day you had to go and test every single browser on multiple versions and really look at every single pixel. And they also don't know that, you know, back in the day, one of the things that we had to do was to, you know, really fight against some of the proprietary browser um, kind of, 
you know, uh, additions to the specification they were trying to add. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I think that one of the things I like to tell uh, a lot of um, the developers I work with or people that um, I know are newer to uh, our industry is y'all are extremely lucky. Y'all are, y'all have the luxury of all of these amazing tools and all these amazing autocomplete, all these amazing debugging tools and all these amazing um, task runners and uh, test runners that we simply didn't have access to um, back in the DHTML days or back in the jQuery days or back in the, you know, uh, uh, God forbid, the um, all caps HTML days. Yeah, I, I would have loved to have VS Code back then um, <laughs> and, and anything else. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just think about people would hand you a Photoshop file and say, make this. Uh, but yeah, Drupal, uh, had so much power and it, and it still does. It has so much power compared to things like um, it, it, back in the day where, where you'd look at something like WordPress, which had two content types really out of the box, which was uh, a post in the page. And then Drupal had no rules. It was a tool to build a CMS. You built all your, okay, this is the taxonomy I want. This is the uh, content types I want. I could bring in different things like context and I could push everything on with a view and have everything display with a view and make these templates and the templates, these TPLs just execute everything I want perfectly. Like it was a way to, to uh, clean out your code where, you know, you might have built or customized a, a WordPress template, but in Drupal, it just, it seemed, at least to me, in my experience, it seemed so much easier to go into Drupal and make a theme, cut things out, set my regions, uh, make a few views, put a tag and boop. And I had like anything I wanted and it was easy to set it up as a CMS for a client. Yeah, uh, I couldn't have said it any better. You know, um, it's, it's such an incredible product. And I think, um, you know, it's good to see that how much of a role model I think Drupal has been for a lot of the um, newer products that we're seeing and some of the newer approaches that we're seeing and some of the new ideas that we're seeing as well. Um, and, and I think it's a very exciting time uh, for, uh, you know, some of the, you know, as we see, right, there, there's, there's always these kinds of historical trends that really point towards, um, you know, ways in which we're going to reinvent the, how we actually innovate in the web. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very proud of my work in the Drupal community, my work in the Drupal ecosystem, um, you know, both code and non-code, uh, to really kind of foster this continuous innovation that not only provides, the, you know, a great future for Drupal itself, but also maps out this amazing kind of range of possibilities for the other CMSs out there and the other content products out there. So I want to get to the part about your book and what you're writing about here, which is uh, your your current book that you have out. And we'll get into the new book a little bit. Maybe you could tease that a little. Uh, but uh, the decouple Drupal in practice. So with this, we're talking about something such as like taking um, taking Drupal data as a headless CMS, pushing it to GraphQL to get the data. GraphQL uh, takes the data to Gatsby. Uh, Gatsby, we use a React template at that point, and uh, Bob's your uncle, kind of the, the, the flow. Am I, am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. So what, why don't we first go at a, at a very high level to help explain this for people that might not understand the whole uh, uh, headless CMS and uh, decoupling. What, is, what does that mean? Sure, yeah. You know, there's a lot of terms tossed around. Um, you know, there's decoupled, there's headless, there's API first, there's hybrid headless, there's, you know, all these sorts of terms that are that are out there. Um, and they all kind of mean the same thing. Uh, you know, there are slight nuances, slight differences. You know, you might read that there's some kind of a definition of decoupled and CMS wire that differs from a different definition of headless. You know, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of terminology that people are using, but fundamentally at its core, a decoupled or a headless content management system is leveraging that content management system's data and, and the content that's contained therein um, as a service so that you can um, actually leverage other systems and create other uh, pieces of software that consume that data. Um, one really good example of this is, um, you know, many people have a website. And that could be in Drupal, that could be in any kind of CMS that you can imagine. It could be a WordPress site. 
But what happens when you know, you've got a need to serve data to a mobile application or you wanna be able to provide a really nice experience for augmented reality or virtual reality, but that needs to be something that is a single rendition of content. One of the things that a lot of people talk about is you know, content reuse and being able to write once and publish everywhere. And this is a really important topic in CMS in general, not just for web websites and web applications, but also for all channels in general. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important to remember about kind of the headless CMS is that it's this increasingly um, interesting paradigm because of the fact that there's, um, you know, not only this notion of more modern front end development experiences, as you mentioned, Frederick, around uh, Gatsby and some of the really interesting API driven approaches that people have now to expose and consume their data. Uh, you know, one you mentioned was, um, for example, the GraphQL kind of specification and, and you know, how, how that query language is really changing the world. Um, but then there's another side to it, which is exactly the no code side of it, which is how can we make sure that these content management systems are ready, not just for the websites that they're originally designed for, but also for all of these new kinds of form factors and devices and screens and experiences and all these different kinds of ways in which people are using uh, and, and consuming content. And this is especially, especially more relevant right now because of the fact that you know, the pandemic has forced us all into lockdown, we're stuck at home, we're working remotely, we're not, consuming content normally. We're not, we're, not, we're not able to necessarily use the same kinds of devices or work in the same ways that we were before. And someone uh, might be using a voice assistant more often now or using um, a, you know, their smartwatch more often now because that's simply what they have right next to them. And it's more convenient than going over to a computer or going over to um, some other place. So um, that, I went to a <laughs> bit of a tangent there, but you know, at its core, uh, this kind of idea of a decoupled CMS or a headless CMS is rather than using the end-to-end -end capabilities of the software, meaning everything from the database out to the delivery of that data out to templates, everything from the templates to how that actually gets rendered out and how that gets flushed out to the browser, rather than leverage the CMS for every single one of those inextricably linked concerns that can't be separated from one another within the context of a traditional or a monolithic uh, content management system, what we're saying is let's just leverage the part that is really crucial for data delivery and data uh, um, formation and data handling, and then let's let a different uh, player come in and hand the baton over, pass the baton, let them go sprinting off in the other direction with their own kinds of uh, implementation, you know, and, 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 and best practices and, and certain ideas about how this should work. And it's exactly like you just mentioned, one of the things that we see very often is obviously, uh, you know, many, many people are leveraging Drupal as that kind of underlying API. I do, as a matter of fact, for my own website. And then, you know, they're able to um, leverage something like GraphQL to serve that data out to a more potentially richer or a potentially more modern or more uh, developer-friendly experience than uh, the one that's part and parcel of the CMS. And you also have the advantage of changing what that might be, uh, depending on where those uh, links in the chain are and the, the technology. There might be something that you go, you know what, we, we have the data over here, now we want to do something else over there. Um, would you say that's fair? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As a point. Absolutely. I think, yeah, one of the things that, that um, you know, I think you illustrated it perfectly, you know, the, the notion of flexibility is so yeah. big in terms of a CMS. It's no longer the case that you're kind of stuck with what the CMS gives you. You know, like a lot of us have been kind of worried about the fact that a lot of the templating or theming or front-end development approaches that are part of WordPress or part of Drupal, um, you know, very much like the, uh, what you alluded to earlier in terms of the fact that there's only two content types in WordPress, um, those sorts of limitations are things that developers are increasingly chafing against, especially in the JavaScript world. And one of the things that I think we'll start to see is exactly that notion of, hey, you know, I've got my Drupal site, but hey, I'm going to decouple it so that I can start to use React. But, you know, React is kind of old news now. Why don't I go over and replace that with Svelte? But I've still got all of my content and all my data and all of my business logic still wrapped up in one location, one single repository, which is the CMS. I just got to take out the um, front end itself and substitute it for something else that I might like.
Yeah, the, the flexibility, just that alone is amazing. And then, of course, the security, because if you're going to take that and push it out to something that spits out a flat file, if somebody's trying to hack your, your website, for example, you have a flat file, what are they going to do with the HTML? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's one of the kind of key concerns that um, a lot of folks have these days is, you know, how do you protect your website when if you get into a single layer of your CMS, you immediately have access to potentially the entire CMS, which means that your entire uh, architecture is now compromised. It's not just about the database, uh, you know, having a SQL injection go in there or having potentially some cross-site scripting because of your, you know, Ajax. It's, it's actually fundamentally something that could compromise the entirety of your content architecture. And I think that's one of the big key reasons why people are moving towards, uh, you know, especially the Jamstack where we're talking about unhackable, literally unhackable static files. It's almost like we're going back to the future, back to the 1990s, where it's true, you know, you, you FTP, the only way you can hack flat files is to FTP into them. You know, there's, there's no real way to kind of hack a flat file. It's not a constantly running server. It's not a, you know, an active database. Um, and one of the things I think a lot of people are worried about these days, and I know um, is a lot of anxiety that is shared in the Drupal community and in the WordPress community, is how do we deal with the increasing frequency of the security vulnerabilities where you know, you're seeing more SQL injection possibilities, you're seeing more you know, XSS vulnerabilities, and these are happening more and more often, partially because of the fact that Drupal and WordPress are so popular, but also because of the fact that uh, they are open source and also that they are monolithic. And so the, the, the notion of decoupling an architecture, I think, um, you know, in terms of security is, is more of a recent trend. I've definitely noticed more recently that this notion of um, leveraging a headless or a decoupled architecture for security reasons um, is actually a very, very compelling uh, motivation now as well. So let's, let's talk about something that's not off subject, but actually very relevant to what you just said is, as somebody in a as a in a company, let's let's say your book. Let me preface your book. The audience for your book, if, 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 is it fair to say, is uh, developers? I would say that, yeah, yeah, architects, developers, yeah. Okay, so that being said, what if uh, someone like a uh, a marketing director, right? They're trying to sell this um, th this idea, this logic to their C um, levels and ups, what what have you. How do they uh, consume this concept? How, do, how, how are they going to get their heads around, oh, okay, you know what? I have a, a small team of developers um, and I, you know, I, I heard this is a great way to do these kind of things. Uh, I would like to do this moving forward. I think there's probably a lot of trepidation with small teams, right? Uh, to say, you know, we were doing all this fine and, and Drupal just the way it is. Let's not rock the boat. This is out of scope. How, how, do, how do we get this kind of logic and this, uh, this pattern, uh, this future pattern uh, moving forward with, with that kind of team? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think you've really touched on um, one of the most intractable problems that I think the content management industry itself and the market faces. Um, yeah. One of the biggest issues that any marketing team or any small content team um, faces is that they are not only contending with a potentially a CMS product that is a little bit more antiquated or out of date, but they're also dealing with the fact that their customer base and their users are increasingly demanding that they have these digital experiences that go well beyond the website. They want to be able to use mobile. They want to be able to use smartwatches. They want to use their smart TV to get to content. They want to use um, AR, VR applications or voice or, um, you know, beacon-driven content. There's all sorts of new and emerging kinds of innovative um, front ends that are now experiencing new presentation layers that are now, uh, you know, appearing. And it's actually causing a great deal of hand-wringing, I would say, um, among content teams. And there's two reasons for this. You know, the first is that, there's a big reason why headless CMSs have really become popular. And the primary rationale, I would say, and the main reason why we saw this initial wave of adoption of these new CMS architectures, and especially these new products that have emerged, is the fact that developers weren't happy and dissatisfied with the technologies that they were working with. 
Um, you know, in Drupal, we had PHP template. Um, it's been forever since I themed WordPress, so I don't remember exactly how it does something in WordPress. Um, but, you know, you know, I've also worked with Django, for example, and, and some of the ways in which these CMSs, um, you know, do presentation management or visual management or visual rendering is something that is so uh, foreign to the developers today who are working with JavaScript paradigms and um, server-side rendering, universal JavaScript, uh, Jamstack uh, best practices as well. But there's two very different audiences that are struggling right now. And, you know, obviously the developers have said, we're done. You know, we're going to move on into our own kind of uh, approach. We're going to leverage a headless CMS. And if you have a tech savvy team or if you have a really great consultancy as a partner, that's okay, right? Because um, if you've got a very, very technical team, you can go ahead and custom build your uh, front end and your presentation layer. Um, and that's a really, really great kind of outcome for developer teams and for engineering teams. But not everyone has access to an IT team. Not everyone has access to a consultancy. Not everyone has access to even the engineer that's sitting across the office. And um, one of the things that I find really striking about the ways in which the headless CMS has become adopted is the fact that fundamentally, you still need the developer. And so there's another side of this as well, which is that the marketing organizations, the legal teams, the compliance groups, the project and product managers, um, all the folks who don't write the code, who aren't developers, who are um, you know, very much important fixtures in content collaboration in the CMS, but don't write code, they're finding themselves left behind. And one of the things that I always like to say is that you know, most software deals with just one single audience or one single persona. The browser deals with the end user. Okay, there's a developer with dev tools, but primarily it's about the end user. Um, you know, if you look at CRM tools, right, they're primarily for uh, people who are working with customer success or working with, you know, customers on a daily basis. But the CMS is really unique because there, there's like a huge amount of people who are coming into the CMS who have very different needs. Um, you know, when you think about the fact that a lawyer might be logging into a CMS, because they're looking for HIPAA compliance to make sure that you know, certain pharmaceutical information is above the fold. Or they might be making sure that there's cookie compliance uh, because they're reviewing you know, compliance for GDPR. But how does that work in an environment where now you have to rely on the developers as a bottleneck to provide all of the information you need to be able to preview this content or analyze your content or really interact with other users in a meaningful way? And so the marketing teams, the, the sort of um, uh, legal teams, the compliance teams, the product teams are really chafing at headless CMSs because yes, they understand, you know, based on all these white papers coming out from folks like Forrester and Gartner that headless CMSs are great for performance, great for interactive user experiences, great for security, but where is the layout management? Where is the drag and drop? Where is the in-place editing? Um, and where are some of these tools? You know, not just those kinds of things, right? Because those are very, very visually in-context oriented kinds of interfaces, but even simpler kinds of things that are very important to especially marketing teams that are very focused on um, SEO or personalization or, um, you know, or, or even something as simple as Google Analytics. How do you change a URL or how do you change a navigation menu? How do you, um, you know, change, let's say, the ordering of certain content? How do you make sure that you can update a certain uh, link to a different URL? How does that happen when you're dealing with experiences that are built entirely by the developer? And so one of my biggest concerns about this, and, and this is the final point that I'll share, is that uh, what it, you know, one of the things I think we need to see is um, a new balance, this sort of new equilibrium. And, and you know, I said this yesterday, actually, to a, um, uh, you know, a CMS uh, 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 expert. I said, what we really need is a democratization of the developer experience. In the same way that we had the democratization of the editorial experience or the no-code user experience 20 years ago. It's the same exact thing that we need to do right now. The pendulum has just swung in the opposite direction. Yeah, you make a really great point there. So we need something possibly like a as a service, a AAS, something like that to where uh, somebody that doesn't have the, the greatest understanding of this could easily execute something like uh, with, with quickness as well to where they could stack up something as far as I, here's my CMS and here, here, here's my full solution. Like, like, like do, do we have a, a, some kind of full solution out there that does everything to where it's a, it's a headless CMS 
It's all these things. It has all my templating in it. Kind of, kind of like it looks like like one of these WordPress things, like like a like, like a super WordPress service, if if you will, that has everything built in, but it's still headless. It's decoupled in in a way, and it does all these things that we want. And it spits out flat files. Is there something that that we're just missing to get to that point and where where we could cross and go? Okay, now now everybody's doing this. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting um, you know uh, kind of quandary. Um, you know, one of the things that I that I would say is that um, I think the idea that kind of utopian um, notion of a single service that can sort of you know solve all of these problems for these users who aren't writing code. Um, that's a very lofty goal and a very, you know, I, you know, I think a very intriguing mission. Um, you know, I just think that one of the one of the challenges we face, of course, is that CMSs in the you know back in the day, as you mentioned earlier, only had to deal with HTML back in the day. You know, they were they were only really concerned about some of the kind of website markup, the web only kinds of ideas that CMSs have long played in the sandbox with. But today, what we're seeing now is, you know, not only is there JavaScript in terms of, um, you know, React and React Native and, um, you know, Electron and some of these other really interesting, you know, um, but also we're seeing increasingly newer languages, newer presentation approaches, newer front end frameworks emerge that are really challenging because they diversify the constellation of different technologies that uh, these um, people need to serve. One of the examples of this, of course, is languages like Dart. You know, Dart is yeah. um, obviously very popular now. Flutter uses it, um, and uh, now, and, and, and then, of course, what's going to happen when Wasm enters the picture uh, in full force with WebAssembly? Once WebAssembly becomes, you know, really well supported across browsers, how is that going to challenge the, the the primacy of JavaScript? And how is that going to also introduce a lot more challenges for CMSs? CMSs are are at a really really tough spot right now because. They've been playing in this HTML world. They've been in this web-only space, but now they're having to contend with all of these different CMSs. And I think it's not going to just be one service. I think it's going to have to be a range of services, a range of patterns, a range of of, of approaches that are going to be very challenging to figure out. I agree, but I also I, I could definitely see if you could make this. I, I, I think there's a I think there's a need, maybe a pain point out there, and if somebody could solve that. I think there's a great opportunity for a business there or service, what have you, to make something like this uh, available for teams to kind of uh, turnkey and go because these teams need a CMS and they, they just need to go uh, for, for, for some of these. It's very funny you say that because um, we're working on this right now with uh, Oracle CS content and um, our own CMS. Uh, yeah, so um, keep an eye on us. <laughs> All right, yeah, please. Where, where can people go to find out more about that? Um, so uh, one place you can go to to find out more is obviously oracle.com has a lot of information about our um, CMS products. There's also a lot of information that I have on my blog uh, about um, you know sort of our work on that. Um, there's also a large amount of documentation. Um, you know, one of the things that is, so one thing I will say about Oracle is that, you know, um, we have a lot of different products and a lot of different documentation, a lot of information. Um, but if you just search for um, uh, Oracle CX content or Oracle content and experience uh, headless CMS documentation, you'll find our full range of um, uh, tutorials that we're adding, you know, every single week, new tutorials to our SDKs, um, uh, you know, sort of our CLI tools as well that really help to accelerate, uh, you know, uh, React development. We're working on Gatsby right now. We've, uh, we've got Flutter also coming down the chute as well as some mm. other frameworks. And one of our goals is to provide these um, amazing boilerplate foundations for developers who really want to integrate deeply with the CMS, who recognize that this is an important concern. And our goal eventually is to really bring these two currently separated by an abyss, you know, parties together into um, this new kind of centralization of content collaboration in a way that really hasn't happened over the course of the last five years or so, I would say. Wow, that's really exciting. I'm very excited to see that. That's, that's uh, okay, it, really cool stuff coming up. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll see, but we'll you, see. 
I've been talking your ear off asking you questions. Let me, I want to make sure that I provide an opportunity here for you to talk about, talk about your book. This came out in 2019. Am I correct? Yeah, it was right. It was right around. uh, It's funny because the pre-order started December, 2018. So I usually say 2018, but the actual book, the first book delivered (laughs) and printed was in 2019. Yeah. Okay, so decoupled Drupal in practice. Can you, is there anything you want to tell people that, uh, obviously we talked a lot about the subject, but anything that we didn't talk about the subject, anything uh, that you want to share to help get the uh, the word out about this book, communicate some of the, the value points? Uh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, th- so first of all, um, you know, one thing I want to share is that um, currently uh, my book is on sale. Um, until July 1st, it's 20% off with the code SODrupal. Um, and it's only on Springer Nature. If you go to springer.com and search for decoupled Drupal in practice, and um, I'm sure we can also share the link uh, here, um, you know, the, uh, it's currently on sale. So you can get it for 20% off. Um, and uh, it's, 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 you know, an, an amazing sale, but it's only while supplies last. There is kind of a limited quantity. So that's going what, on until what's July that code? 1st. Oh, it's so Drupal, S-O-Drupal, so S-O-D-R-U-P-A-L. Perfect, yeah, and we'll we'll have all that in the show notes, everyone. And uh, anything else, too, that you want to add in the show notes, Preston, go ahead and add to this document. We'll make sure that we have that in there for everybody. Sure thing, sure thing. The other thing I want to talk to you about is you you hinted that you have a new book that is uh, possibly coming out soon or you're working on. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I was kind of, uh, um, you know, I was kind of wondering, like, when would be the right moment to kind of share news about this book? I haven't really mentioned it a lot. You know, I've, I've sort of talked about it in passing, saying I'm working on a book, but I've never actually revealed what it's about or shared, you know, anything about Here's the moment. Is. So you just landed a huge scoop. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's an exclusive, yeah. Um, so uh, I am currently working on a book for A Book Apart. Um, you know, you might know A Book Apart from the legendary Bibles on uh, responsive web design, on SVG, on animation, you know, an amazing series of books. But my focus in particular is going to be on how to enable voice driven content, voice uh, content strategy for voice, information architecture for voice design for voice content, as well as usability and accessibility as well. Um, so that book is, it's going to be a little while. It's, it's in progress right now. I've got it, uh, you know, quite a lot of it done now. And um, it's going to be an incredible uh, kind of addition to the literature out there on um, conversational design, which is uh, a really, really um, amazing space right now because there's so many exciting kinds of ideas and exciting um, concepts that are now emerging, but it's very much a new and immature space. And there's so many things that have to be figured out. So um, yeah, that'll be coming most likely next year. Oh, that's great. Okay. I'm super excited. Yeah. Conversational design is just fascinating. Um, the, the whole, do you mind just uh, maybe just explaining the, the for, for, for the audience that might not understand it just in brevity really quick? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, uh, you know, I found it interesting because, you know, in reviewing the show notes earlier, I saw that um, one of the things that uh, a lot of people compare conversational design to is, is material design. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting kind of, kind of idea. I'm really interested in the kind of um, very like big picture notion of conversational design. And that is basically how do we provide really great user experiences that are usable and accessible and inclusive um, and equitable for um, uh, chat bots and for Slack bots and text bots and Facebook messenger bots and um, uh, conversational forms. But my interest, because I worked on this actually uh, when I was at Acquia, where I uh, I worked on Drupal and worked on some of these really interesting applications for Drupal, um, I really got into voice. Because, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, conversational design, which is really about how do you take all of the things that we normally do with our interfaces, whether it's conducting a transaction or executing an action or uh, buying something or searching for something, how do we translate all of those kinds of interaction patterns and all of those kinds of things that we do on a transactional or informational basis over to um, the conversational context in a more interlocutory or a more dialogic way where instead of clicking a button to submit or instead of you know hitting the search text box, I'm actually giving my query verbally to an interface or actually 
asking the interface to do something on my behalf without actually using any of my artificial keyboard or mouse or you know, you know, tools that I would normally have at my disposal. And in that sense, I would say, one of the things that I think is very important about conversational design is that it is fundamentally a very human endeavor because you're talking about conversation, which is one of the very, very primordial uh, things that we as a species do. Um, and so, you know, I think that voice is a very interesting space because it totally scrambles all of our preconceived notions of not only, um, you know, some of the things that we do with our interfaces, but also content. Um, how do you expose content in a voice format? It might be easier in a chatbot to expose voice content, but when you're actually reciting content or it's being spoken, that's a very different kind of picture of content than it is from text. And so it introduces all sorts of really interesting complexities and, and really interesting kinds of considerations that are going to be the focus of my book. Yeah, just things like the nuance of saying something like, please, or hey, or, you know, the tones of voice. The, there's so much that goes into this and that can go into it uh, here and moving into the future. It's, it, it's I, I, again, I, I find it extremely fascinating. I know that you said that you, uh, you're doing this on, or publishing it on um, a book apart, and you were um, touring with uh, an event apart as well, right? Yes, that's correct, actually. I just gave a talk last week for um, an event apart online together. I've got, um, well, assuming that we're able to uh, flatten the curve in the country, um, I'll be speaking in December, I believe, in San Francisco as well about the very same topic. And this um, talk is really about not just the implications of voice on content, but also some of the unique ways in which the human dimensions of voice and speech and, and conversation challenge some of the you know, more mechanical or machine-driven things that we have to think about. Um, one really good example of this is, you know, consider the fact that we have um, the vast majority of the interfaces that we use are artificial and learned. Uh, when it comes to a mouse, we have to learn how to use a mouse. We have to learn how to use the little scroll wheel and what is a left click and what is a right click. Or a keyboard. We have to learn what the QWERTY layout is or what the Dvorak layout is or, or whatever it is. And video game controllers are the same thing. You know, where the A button is, where the B button is, what this button does. I don't play much video games these days, but you know what I mean. Um, but the thing about conversation is that we don't learn how to talk. We don't learn in that same way that we learn how to use a keyboard or how to use a mouse, how to talk. We learn through our natural upbringings and our childhoods and our infancy and our acquisition of language, how to actually speak. And so one of the things that really is of interest to me is the ways in which the presentation of content through voice can introduce certain challenges and certain implications that we need to be very, very careful about when it comes to inclusive design. Um, and one of the examples of this is, you know, think about when you talk with an Alexa or a Google Home device or Cortana or Siri, what's the one thing that is characteristic of all of them? They all have the voice of somebody that you might picture in your mind as a white woman or a white cisgender woman. It's not necessarily uh, a black man or an Asian woman or, uh, you know, somebody who is uh, potentially more representative of the actual user who is conversing with this interface. And so the notion that it's not just about the algorithms that drive speech synthesis and speech recognition, but also the algorithms that drive the illustration of the personality and the identity that we're presenting as the face of the interface is a very unique problem to voice in particular. And it's a problem that a lot of other interface designers don't have. Um, and that's why, that's one of the big reasons why I'm so interested in voice is because it really forces us, rather than putting a human face, or sorry, rather than putting a kind of a machine face on human interactions and human patterns like we do with keyboards and mice, we're actually putting a human face on a machine so it looks, acts, and talks more like us. And what does that mean? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah just the whole anthropomorphizing of these personalities, uh, it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it is, it's truly fascinating and, and it, it, the better uh, results we get from this is making sure that we are, companies are doing their due diligence and uh, ensuring that we diversify our teams and that we have a true representation of, of humanity here.
Absolutely. And, and I think that's especially important when it comes to the fact that increasingly, um, you know, obviously, of course, with the kind of uh, reckoning we're having right now on police violence and anti-blackness and, 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 you know, white supremacy and, and some of these really oppressive structures is, you know, how do we make sure that we're not applying some of the prejudices and some of the problematic notions that we have on the interfaces that we create. It's not just about the um, you know, face recognition technologies or the image kind of detection capabilities that uh, law enforcement agencies are using. It's also about something as benign as a phone hotline that's using um, a voice that is presenting a very particular image of that person and that brand and that organization in your head. Exactly, yeah. Very well said. Well, Preston, we're getting to, to the end of the show and I'd like to make sure that I have room for two last questions. First question is, what is the best way people could find out more about you? What is your website? What is your Twitter handle? Obviously, we'll have links in the show notes, but for our uh, uh, audience listening on uh, the podcast, how do, how do they find out more about you? Sure. Um, there's uh, my website is Preston.so, which is, uh, and by the way, in case, you're, in case you're curious, the top level domain is Somalian. <laughs> Everyone always likes to ask, where is, what, what, what is .so? How did you get that domain? Um, it's it's, it's, it's um, Somalian. Um, and um, if you want to read some of my writing, that's at Preston.so slash writing. Um, you can also get a hold of me at Preston.so at oracle.com or Preston.so slash contact. And um, I also have a, um, um, a variety of uh, social media that you can get a, get, get a hold of me on as well. Uh, LinkedIn, um, my name is Preston So, and my Twitter handle is also Preston So. I'm also on GitHub in case you want to reach me there as well. And Preston, last question is, do you have any final words of wisdom for our audience? Uh, I'd like to make sure that we provide an opportunity for, uh, for the guests to say anything that they didn't get a chance to say or any kind of uh, uh, advice that they could provide. Sure. I'll make this a rapid fire two-parter because I did forget to do a quick shameless plug, which is I'm actually wearing and repping the shirt of the conference that I organize, uh, help organize in New York City. I work on an amazing team. This is a nonprofit community-led conference. It's called Decoupled Days. And it's the only uh, community-led, uh, volunteer-led, nonprofit, headless CMS conference in the world. Um, we have set some amazing goals this year, and we have an exciting speaker lineup. We're going virtual July 22nd to 23rd. Tickets are only $10, and uh, you can find out more information at decoupleddays.com. Um, and then the second thing that I would say is that, um, uh, you know, it's been a real pleasure to be on the show, Frederick. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's always so wonderful to be able to share some of my own lived experience, some of the things that I um, uh, I you know, have been working on with a wider audience. And I would encourage um, everyone who's listening today to think of opportunities that you can help some of the marginalized or underrepresented people in your lives to have this kind of exposure, to um, provide them with the platform and the um, raising up and the, central, the, the, the centering and um, the uplifting of the voices that we really need. Um, as I just you know, mentioned with my example of voice interfaces, representation really does matter. It's a very, very important, important phrase. And um, one of the things that I really want to encourage people to do who are listening is I would love to have everyone give a little bit of thought as to how you can help those people who are in your lives, those friends of yours or those colleagues of yours who haven't been able to get a chance in some of the spotlights that we see. Um, if you've got a BIPOC colleague who hasn't ever been given the limelight or hasn't ever been given that kind of uh, elevation or promotion or visibility that they deserve, think of ways that you can do that because representation matters and we wanna make sure that um, the world reflects who we are and isn't just reflecting a certain uh, a subset of people or a certain subset of organizations. Wow, thank you so much for saying that, Preston. I, I couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you so much. Uh, great. Preston, I, again, thank you. Honored to have you on the show. This this was really a delight. I'm really, really happy that, uh, that you uh, accepted our invitation and just thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I apologize for the noise. I apologize for the slight echo here, um, but I do hope that this was really uh, a great um, um, kind of experience and knowledge share for a lot of you. And um, I wish you all uh, an amazing next week. Thank you so much, Preston. Thanks everybody for watching. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thanks for consuming the Thunder Nerds. We 
honestly and sincerely appreciate you watching and or listening to the show. Please subscribe on YouTube and iTunes. Write us review, keep a few stars our way. And above all else, please remember to send your favorite book suggestions to Brian Hinton. I, I like romance novels. They have happy endings. Oh man, I am rude. I am, I am rude. <laughs> oh, I guess no one's watching me. That's shocking. <laughs> exactly. I love Frederick. I love Frederick. I love Frederick. I love Frederick. I should have known the Terrator didn't mean us any harm when the Sword of Omens didn't obey me. And anyway, it was just plain stupid to assume it might be bad. Just what the <laughs> fuck am I talking about?